So welcome everyone. Just a little bit more about me. I have been meditating for over 30 years. So I started at the ripe old age of 17 when I wandered into a class in university. And it was um, quite transformative being in that class. And from that class, just in the lecture hall in the university, I had a really strong impression or sense of wanting to be a nun. And that sense came because I had the feeling that the, really, no matter all the blessings that I had in my life, which were abundant, I could have a sense that they were temporary, that they were not something that I could hold on to. And yet I had a clear sense that there was something that could happen in a life dedicated to awakening that would bring forward a kind of happiness that was more lasting and more long-term. And so it was the sense that a, a life of a, uh, as a, as a, in this kind of a way had that, had that potential for it. And so that was the reason the, the interest in, in developing and sustaining a, a longer-term happiness was the reason why I uh, decided to be a nun. Now, I am the only monastic here that I notice. You might be in, underneath your robes a monastic, underneath your, your work clothes. But for myself, I can see that I'm the only one wearing this. What the important thing is, is, is that this is not a religious um, class. This is not about teaching you to take on a certain kind of belief. What I'm interested in sharing are some of the things that all of us can learn to do and we can consider that will make our own lives happier and healthier. Okay. So when we look at happiness um, from a, just a regular perspective, we can see that happiness can be described as pleasure. And pleasure can be the kind of things that we experience from food or from romance or from travel or from adventure or from making a deal, you know, the kind of the high that comes from being able to make a deal. But the way the research has shown it is, is that with this kind of happiness, the kind that comes from pleasure, because the pleasure is very transitory, then the happiness is very transitory. So we're looking for another meal, we're looking for another deal, we're looking for another adventure, we're looking for another high to get in order to secure that kind of happiness. And you can see it all over the place. You know, we look for that kind of happiness, we get that kind of happiness, and it doesn't last. The next kind of happiness that actually uh, we can notice is passion. And when in a, an environment we really see this coming alive is where peak performance meets peak engagement. So when you're doing what you absolutely love, you know, and you feel like you're in the zone with that, when you're, when you're doing work that you love and your performance is uh, at a very high level as a result of that, there's a lot of satisfaction that comes from being in that uh, peak performance, peak engagement, passionate space. And research shows that this is the second longest kind of happiness. The last kind of happiness is, is being connected to a higher purpose. And this higher purpose is being bigger being part of something that's bigger than yourself, something that has meaning for you that you are part of. And when we are connected to that, then there is a kind of a lasting or a longer kind of happiness that is possible to have. Now, my brother 
of a way of doing business that's made happiness one of its core principles. So somebody offered me this book, Delivering Happiness, A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose. And it's a, this is the, um, the comic strip book, and then there's an actual, a whole book that has been written. And it's mostly about the business stuff and the kind of thinking behind it. So for entrepreneurs, it's brilliant because it's all right up your alley in terms of the kinds of things that you're doing. But what they found was, is, is that if they made their customers happy through better customer service, and they made their employers happy through creating a culture that supported uh, um, honesty, transparency, team spirit, uh, camaraderie, and then if they are able to work on themselves through understanding the science of happiness, then they have a whole culture that supports happiness as kind of like the basis from which their business works. Now, Zappos not long ago sold their company to Amazon for a billion dollars, so he's figured out how to combine happiness and passion and profits in a way that is phenomenally and the people who all work there, they feel like, you know, they're in a, a kind of a, a tribe of like-minded souls who are interested in doing something together. They are really pleased with where it's going. So, you know, in a normal work life, the, where you work is like 30% of where you're spending your time. And so if you're figuring out how to optimize the happiness you experience in your work environment, then already you've got 30% more of your life where happiness is an important part of what you're, what you're doing, what you're experiencing, what you're communicating, and what you're relating. So what is found in... Uh, well, let me just read you a quote here from His Holiness Dalai Lama. So this is also a fabulous book, absolutely brilliant book. And uh, the Dalai Lama, do you all know the Dalai Lama? Personally, <laughs> but you know of him, yeah. So he's a pretty amazing person because, to me, as a, as a, as an exemplar of a human being who has been through an enormous amount of of displacement and seeing the suffering of his people and genocide of his people, you know, he radiates absolutely is luminous and radiates happiness, and it is such an incredible pleasure to be around him because of that. Anyway, he says, um, I believe that the very purpose of our life is to seek happiness. That's clear. And whether one believes in religion or not, whether one believes in this religion or that religion, we are all seeking something better in life. So I think the very motion of our life is towards happiness. So independent of your belief system, independent of your religious affiliation, this is common ground that we all have or could possibly have. Um, we all definitely do have in common. Now, from a business perspective, you know, research has found that happy people are generally more sociable. They're more flexible. They're more creative. They're able to tolerate life's frustrations easier. And probably most importantly, they're more loving and forgiving than unhappy people. 
And so in a business context, you know, there's an immediate correlate to see how people who are sociable and flexible and creative and tolerate life's frustrations are more productive, more able to problem solve, more able to work as a team. And so the greater the happiness of the team, the more productive it will be. So whether you came here because you were interested in bringing more happiness to yourself or you're interested in more happiness in your uh, corporate life or your culture or your team, or you're interested in delivering happiness and creating more happiness in the world, you know, all of these are valid reasons for being here today. So one of the things that's important to know and to remember and to remember frequently is, is that our state of happiness has a lot more to do with our state of mind than the actual events of what we're experiencing. So let me give you an example. When I was reading this comic book, you know, um, Tony was talking about how he was in a company, company and um, they did really well and it sold out and he had $40 million in his pocket and he was absolutely miserable because he had $40 million in his pocket, but the contract in order to get the $40 million was is that it was going to be hired on for a year to be working for this company. He had no power, no autonomy. He wasn't doing what he wanted. He wasn't interested in what they were doing. So he was very wealthy. I think he was 26. He was very wealthy and miserable. Okay? And there was another story of a woman who... Got involved in the startup. They did extremely well. After 18 months, they sold out. She was dripping with stock options. At the age of 32, she was able to retire. And notice that, you know, for the year around that whole process, she was incredibly excited about the amount of money she was going to have. And she was happy to buy a new house. But after a year, it all settled down and business was as usual. She had the same kind of issues with depression and anxiety and all the rest of that that she had before she got the money. And then there was another story of a man who found out that he had HIV. So this is a terrible diagnosis none of us would want. And the year around it was really um, hard. You know, it was scary, and he was frightened, and he was anxious. But after he adjusted to the fact that he had this difficult diagnosis, he started um, spending more time reading. He started spending more time contemplating things that were important. He started thinking about things in a different way, and as he started doing all of that, he noticed that the quality of his life started improving dramatically. And so he came to understand that, without a shadow of a doubt, he was grateful for the um, opportunity for his life to improve and to live with a better quality of life, even though what he was living with was a diagnosis that was very difficult. I have a, a Buddhist non-sister who uh, this year, or last year, she was diagnosed with melanoma and went through a whole series of treatments. And um, there was a tumor that was in the bone marrow of her leg that wasn't able to be treated. So she was faced with the decision of what to do. So she ended up having the bottom part of her leg taken off. Now, she was Swiss-born, and she loves to go hiking in the mountains. That's a passion for her. So she had a funny leg. So she had her leg removed, and it was, it was fitted with a prosthesis. And, you know, she recovered from the surgery. She recovered from the adjustment, and she took her prosthesis out flying out in the mountains. And just three days ago, she wrote a letter to her friends and to her community and to her supporters about the 
blessings of her life and with the ways in which she's fortunate. So within a, a few months, she transitioned for what most people would be um, quite an ordeal and was able to focus on the blessings of her life. So the point of this is, is, is that it isn't so much the actual thing that we're experiencing. It has to do with the attitude and the way that we're relating to it as to whether or not we feel happy or we feel frustrated or we feel discontent. Now, one of the things that is um, interesting about the nature of contentment is, is that it has a lot to do with our comparative mind. And so when we look at, you know, read the newspapers and we see what goes on with the, with the sports stars, you know, so they make a gazillion dollars. You know, one gazillion, two gazillion, three gazillion dollars. A year. Three gazillion dollars a year. And they're furious because the person on the team makes three gazillion and a hundred dollars a year. You know? So they have this incredible sense of how unfair it is that they haven't got as much as this next guy and they're making more money than... I. You know, it's a lot. <laughs> and so it's not the absolute amount of money one is making, it's the comparative of how one is placing oneself relative to somebody else who one thinks one should be on an equal level with. Now, if we're smart, we can understand this mechanism and use it to our own advantage. If we can see that comparison is something where our happiness comes from, then we can use our situation and think about people who have a lot less than us and do it regularly as a way of reflecting on how many blessings we have. So, happiness is something which is actually innate. There's two kinds of happiness. There's the kind of happiness that we cultivate, the kind that we can chase after, and there's the kind of happiness that's actually inside of us. Now, one of the things that I appreciate about the training that I have is an understanding and teachings and a way to recognize that what we are when we stop being worried and anxious and depressed and frightened are happy, loving, joyful beings. That's our nature. And so what is needed is to learn how to work with our experience to sift through the clouds so that we can see the radiant sun that is actually who we are. This is our nature. This is not something we have to create. This is not something we have to make. This is not something that we have to formulate. It's something that we need to work with allowing the stuff that obscures that to resolve so that we can see clearly. In a profound sense of the way, happiness has many levels to it. There's the material wealth. There's this, the kinds of happiness that we can get by having the things that we want. There's the spiritual kind of happiness that we can develop through letting our minds become calm, through cultivating positive states of mind. And then there's ultimate happiness, which is completely unshakable, and this is the kind of happiness that is absolutely not in any way conditioned by the environment or the experiences around us. 
this kind of liberation is what um, the ultimate purpose of meditation can be used for. And people can pick any level of that scale that they want to, to go with it. Okay. But leaving aside the ultimate and leaving aside any kind of spiritual aspiration, even in worldly terms, in order to just navigate our daily life, the more calm we have, the more grounded we are, the more centered we are, the more peaceful and relaxed we are, the more that we're able to enjoy the simple things that come, the simple kindnesses that are offered, the simple synchronicities that happen, and feel a kind of ease with all of that. So no matter where we place ourselves in the continuum of what our commitment is and what our aspiration is, there's a lot of benefit and there's no harm from developing happiness and the kinds of qualities of mind that support that. So Viktor Frankl said that between the stimulus that comes to us, the things people say, and our response, what we, what we do, there is a space. And in that space lies our freedom to choose a response. And in our response lies our growth and our happiness. And so the whole purpose of meditation and calmness is to increase that space. Okay. So let me talk a little bit about meditation, you know, the kinds of ways or the kinds of muscles that we're going to be developing, and then we'll do some meditation practices. So what we're interested in developing is a strong, stable, and perceptive attention. We're then interested in using that to focus on our body and our breath. Now, the reason why we're interested in using it to focus on our body and our breath is because every thought we have and every emotion we have has a correlate in our body, and it will also affect the quality of our breath. So when we use our focused attention to be observant of our body, we have more vividness and more resolution in the sensations in our body than we do when we're just trying to figure out what's going on in our mind. So this is the first and most important foundation for us to understand, to bring our focused attention to our body. So meditation has two components to it. It's a mental training, and it works with attention and attention to attention, two kinds of attention. So attention is the ability to know and see something clearly and with a vivid form. And attention to attention is our ability to notice when we've wandered. Okay, And both of these are what we need in our meditation. So, for example, if we're riding a bike, there's all kinds of little micro-recoveries that are needed in order to keep the bike up. So if we lean a little bit to this way, then we counterbalance that way. If we lean a little bit that way, we counterbalance this way. And when we get used to doing that in a relaxed way, then what happens is, is the bike stays upright and we are able to go forward. All right. So the relaxed and alert attention that's needed in meditation is a very similar kind of thing that's what's needed in riding a bike, where we're constantly bringing our 
attention back into the what we've placed our, our object to be, what we've decided our object to be, and doing it in a very relaxed manner. All right. So one of the things is is that it's 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 important to recognize that the quality of relaxation is fundamental to our happiness. It's fundamental to bringing about concentration, and it's fundamental to being about a sense of, of um, uh, understanding how the mind and body works. So normally, when we we say do something, we bring forward in an effort which is greater than the task needed. So when we're lifting up a fork, all we need is enough contact and connection with the fork to lift it. We don't need the same effort to lift a sledgehammer. Okay. So when we're wanting to focus our attention on our body or focus our attention on our breath, what's needed is for the mind to be open and relaxed and perceptive, alert, rather than tight or gripping or forced or frightened. And when we go through the practices, I'll do some practices that help us relax so that we can get a feeling for what a relaxed attention feels like. So when we exercise our mental muscles in a similar way when we're exercising our physical body. Okay, anybody go to the gym? Who goes to the gym? A lot of people go to the gym. When you go to the gym, do you push weights? Do you swim? Some push weights, some swim. Does anybody run on a track? Okay, whatever you do, there are particular exercises that you engage in. I don't think anybody here thinks that you've done it wrong when you've pushed the weight, when you've pedaled the pedal, or when you're running on a track. That's the point of why you go to the gym, okay? So when we are bringing our attention back to the present moment, it's the same as pushing the pedal or running a track or swimming a lap. We're actually exercising the muscle of remembering we have not done anything wrong in the same way when you're in the weights. You are not doing anything wrong when you push the weight out. That's what you're supposed to be doing. So we have an idea that meditation is, is that our mind is supposed to stay where we'd like it to stay. And if it moves away, we've done something wrong. But we are forgetting that one whole component of meditation is to develop the muscle to bring it back. And when we're bringing it back, that is a part of what is needed in meditation. Okay? So the good news about this is, is that it, it does not, um, that you can't meditate wrong. Okay? Because when we forget, what we need to do is to remember, and the act of remembering is an aspect of meditation. All right? There's nothing has gone wrong. Now, one of the things about exercise is is, is that if you get into a regular habit of it, you can feel more energy, you can wake up feeling better, you digest your food better, you are able to navigate stress better, your complexion starts to shine, you feel better about yourself, okay? Well, all of these same things happen when you meditate, okay? Our own inner sense of well-being increases. 
our sense of anxiety decreases, we smile more, our social life increases because we're smiling more, our complexion starts to brighten because we have less stress, we feel much better about ourselves. Now one of the things that is in common with exercise and meditation is, is that usually, particularly when we're out of shape, it, there's quite a hurdle to get to the point where we feel the benefits of it so much so that it doesn't take much effort to do it because we know how good it feels when we've done it. Okay, And because there's a hurdle to get there, then there are usually kinds of things that people can do in order to help themselves to get through that. One of them is to have a gym buddy so that you go to the gym with your buddy so that if you've made a commitment to go to the gym, then you don't flake out on your buddy. So even if you're not feeling up to it, you have a commitment with your buddy, you go. All right. The other thing is to do things in a sustained way, like with an instructor or something, so that you can get through the kind of horrible feeling of what it's like to get back into shape when we've been out of shape with somebody coaching and encouraging and pushing. I remember I was on the swim team once, and honestly, when the swim instructor was pushing us to do these laps, if any person had done that to me individually, I would have slugged them. You know, it was like, <laughs> it was too hard. But in a group context, I was willing to go through something that I wouldn't have done on my own, right? So I just finished a retreat, and on the retreat, there were 15 people, and we were meditating from many hours a day. And lots of those people only normally meditate for half an hour a day, okay? But together in a group context with coaching and support and encouragement, we were able to do together what most of those people wouldn't have been able to do on their own, okay? So for each of us in our meditation practice, there's a similar usefulness in having a meditation buddy where you talk about your commitment and you, uh, every week, just for maybe 10 or 15 minutes a week, you talk about what your commitment is, how it's going, what has been rising up in your practice and your life that is related to it. And then at the end of the 10 or 15 minutes, you just debrief and share how the conversation went. Because in this way, when you are connected with somebody else who's also interested in doing that, then you have support. The other thing that is really super important is to not do as much as you can. Now, what this means is, is that we have these goals that we set, and sometimes the goals that we set are at the upper limit of what we're capable of doing. And when we're at the upper limit of what we're capable of doing, it can feel like a, a burden because we're feeling overextended. If we always are beneath our upper limit, then what is happening is, is that we get the benefits of the meditation without the feeling that it's a chore or a feeling that we're not doing it okay or doing it well enough. Okay? And then something which can be really helpful to sustain the practice, to begin to get a feeling for it, is to make a commitment to take one mindful breath every day. That's it. Just one mindful breath. So it's like I'm not asking you to shave your head and to spend 20 hours a day in meditation. It's to take one mindful breath a day. And then as we begin to see the blessings of taking one mindful breath a day, then what happens is, is that this stuff starts to start spreading out into other parts of our life. And I'll talk about that as we begin.
and you can notice the result. Do you feel wound up? Do you feel anxious? Do you feel chilled out? Do you feel calm? Do you feel peaceful? You know, this is not ours. It's just a few minutes. So what's really helpful is the intention to focus one's attention and to begin to recognize that as we do this, more and more this becomes something that's just part of our life. But we don't live in silence. We don't live this way. What we do is we're interacting with people and we're interacting with our cell phones and we're interacting with the world. And so it's really important to know that we can bring this quality of relaxed and focused attention into those experiences as well. So I'd like you to partner up with somebody you feel comfortable with. Find somebody you feel comfortable with. And what you need to do is to face each other. So the chairs need to be facing each other. So that we're going to have you, I'm going to have you do some work with speaking with each other. So that we can bring this, these qualities of relaxed and focused attention into conversations with each other. Okay? So you get to turn the chairs around. Yeah? Okay. There's somebody back here. And we've got one. Would you like to be part of a three? Yeah. Can you can you join this this group here? Okay. So this is going to be a very different kind of communication because I'm going to give you instructions. And the first instruction is going to feel very uncomfortable because I'm going to ask you to do something that is normally what you don't ever do. All right. Normally we speak about things that are important. And normally we speak about things we want to make an impression. And normally we speak and we're interested that somebody understands us. And this first exercise is to do none of those things. This first exercise is to speak the direct experience of what you're feeling in your body to your partner. Okay? So we're not interested in impressing and we're not interested in making sense and we're not interested in creating a good impression. What we're interested in doing is accurately reporting what's going on. So this first bit is to cut through all of our normal conventional habits around speech. And the reason for that is because our speech tends to move us out into our heads, into our ideas, into our assumptions, into our projections, and we totally don't feel what's going on in our body. We have to learn how to feel what's going on in our body in order to be able to communicate in a way where we can bring relaxed, focused attention to it. So I'm not going to keep you doing this forever. This is not the lifetime instruction. It's just the initial instruction. Okay? So I have the magic bell. When you hear the sound of the bell, then whatever's going on, you stop. So in the middle of a sentence, stop. Now, I'm not the only one who's got a magic bell. You also have a magic bell. And so at any point, if you notice, you're losing it. You're into ideas, into concepts, into stories. You're wanting to impress somebody. You're concerned about what they think of you. You totally have no clue what's going on in your body. Stop. Stop talking. Close your eyes. Feel what's going on in your body. And when you want to, start again. All right? So this cuts across all the normal conventions deliberately so that we can begin to feel what is happening in our body as we're speaking. Now, listeners, you also have a task. You are not to affirm. You're not to encourage. You're not to agree. You're not to fix. What your job is is to listen with your body, 
to listen with your whole body what the other person is saying. All right? And I'll change you. So it's not only one person listening and one person speaking, but at the most in the beginning time, we'll have one speaking and the other one listening and then we'll change. Is that clear? Yeah? Now, with threes, I'm going to have you on a different time sequence. So I'll come over and pester you at a different time rate than I pester everybody else. Okay? But what you need to do with your partner is pick which one is speaking and then you which two are initially listening. Okay? Okay. Okay, so when you hear the sound of a bell, everyone starts with your eyes closed and with your attention in your body. And just notice, even just sitting across from another person, there's feeling. There's expectation, there's feeling, there's a sense of another person, there's uncertainty about what's going to happen. All of that happens when we speak with somebody else. That's normal. Yeah. But we could know what that feels like in our own body. Now, when you hear the sound of the bell, then the person who's speaking first in your own time, open your eyes and speak as simply and as directly as you can about what's immediately going on in your own body. Now just pause for a moment, just mid-flow, and just check in, you know, how are you doing? Are you feeling your body? It's hard. It's hard because there's so much in communication where we just lose contact. Yeah. So just stay once again and connected to the body. And then when you hear the sound of the bell again, begin sharing in dialogue. Yeah. So one of the things about this particular kind of way of practicing with meditation is, is that when we're doing it with partners, it's very different from when we're doing it on ourself or with ourselves meditating alone. And this quality of interacting with each other, it's, you know, it's helpful to just acknowledge that it takes more than one. So just in a way that's appropriate, just acknowledge your partner. And let's circle up and we can have the last few minutes and question and answer conversation. I'm curious how that was for you. I mean, the whole thing, the different kinds of meditations and whether you have a feeling for what relaxed, uh, focused attention is and how that affects you when you're using that in communication. What was your experience? I need lots of help. <laughs> But you know, I see at the end of what we've been doing this for 40 minutes, your face is completely different than it was when you walked in here. You know, there's more color, there's more light, there's more vitality. So with all of us, we need lots of help. And the question is, is, is that we just need to start where we're at and find ways to bring this into our life in, in as many different ways as we can. Yes. When I was conversing with the others, yes, that when they were talking, what they were saying, I was so focused on what they were saying, yes, and I actually gained more out of that than I would in just my day-to-day conversation, yes, yeah. That 
I truly listened. Yes. I didn't just have my crowded brain talking over here. Yes. Yes. And it made a big difference. Yes. So the internal experience is much more satisfying, but what we didn't have a chance is to check out with our partners how it actually felt to be listened to like that. And if we had a chance, it would probably be that it's actually deeply satisfying for somebody to pay attention focused on what you're saying. So simple thing of bringing full attention to a conversation brings about a sense of inner clarity as well as a sense of inner satisfaction. And then the interaction is more rich. The contact is more meaningful. And the experience is more joyful for both. And it was all because of the meditation before, I believe, and connecting with, like, I don't know how to say you know. So what it is, is is that our normal habits cut across our capacity to stay with relaxed and focused attention in this way. And so what we need to do is to retrain our habits so that this is actually our normal place rather than the exceptional place. Yeah. Yes, please. I, I meditate most of the time with my eyes closed, but when I'm out in nature, then I usually, when I'm walking around, obviously I keep my eyes open. There's advantages to both. You know, the advantages of keeping your eyes closed is, is that there tends to be more stillness. The advantages of keeping your eyes open is that you tend to have more, um, uh, the, the bridge between the silent meditation and the, and the engaged meditation is easier. There's lots of times when you have the urge to fall asleep. And, you know, sometimes it's because actually you're exhausted. You know, you've been working 90 hours a week for the last eight months and you're exhausted. Sometimes it is because our, our, our internal systems are so habituated to input that when we don't have the cell phone going and the laptop going and the radio going and the, you know, we don't know what to do. It feels like it's la-la lab. It's time to go to sleep. So we need to reprogram our system to know that just because there's not 10 things going on at the same time, we're just focusing on the breath, that it's actually okay to be awake in that. And that can take a little bit of persistence to retrain our system so that we don't just knock out every time, you know, it's not blaring noise and we don't have five things that we're multitasking at the same time. Yeah very much within ordinary, normal range. Yeah. What do you think about guided meditations? Guided meditations are fabulous. Um, the, what's helpful is, is that we can begin at some point to learn to guide ourselves because we're not always plugged in to whoever's guiding them. Yeah. But there are times, particularly when our minds are so tight or we're so agitated that it's very difficult to self-direct and to relax and to go through these things ourselves. And so to have guided meditations that we, it's easier to listen, to follow, than it is to direct. Yeah? And particularly when we're, um, there's something that's agitating, very agitating, and we haven't learned how to relax ourselves and, and let ourselves wind down, then it's really useful. 
I've, you know, I'm a seasoned meditator, but there have been times when I've made guided meditations for myself so that I can listen to them because it was easier for me to listen than it would be to me to self-direct. Now, the website, the Awakening Truth website, has a whole library of talks and guided meditations on it. And so it's a resource. Please feel welcome to use it. Yeah. Yes, please. I've noticed in the past in groups that um, sometimes, where I know I'm going to speak at some point, that uh, I, and I don't know if it's a desire to impress or a desire to avoid embarrassment that I won't say the right thing, but I've noticed that my breathing gets shallow, almost to the point of gulping for air at times. And what I noticed today is that it was actually useful for me to, in terms of bringing myself back to my body to notice that I didn't use moisture cream this morning and that my forehead itches. It was actually useful just to notice that body sensation, yeah, yeah. which actually is a little uncomfortable. Yes, yes, yeah. But yeah. that I hadn't noticed you know, since 7 o'clock this morning. Yes, yes. But I noticed it here. Yes, yes. Well, I know, you know, when you've got a kind of like a hierarchy, a scale of terrifying things that people can go through, you know, you can have um, nuclear holocaust, murder, rape, um, war. Public speaking is like on the top of the list, you know. So when you, when you, when you sample a large population of people, above all things, Public speaking is terrifying for people. And so learning how to relax in our own body and to feel comfortable in ourselves and to be able to convey what we need to convey um, takes some practice. For most people, it doesn't come naturally. Yeah. But as we learn to pay attention to our own bodies, there's all kinds of things that happen. And this is one thing that happens is that we're healthier. And we're able to find things that are not going well in our bodies quicker, so we get to doctors faster. There's, I mean, there's a whole bunch of brain chemistry things that change and body chemistry things that change. And so there's a lot of positive effects that come from learning how to um, train our attention to sustain a relaxed and focused attention and that the benefits go through the whole of our life. You know, they're just... There's, there are very few places where our life is not positively impacted. So um, we're, we're winding up. I just want to finish with this quote, which my brother, who's sitting in the back, posted this morning on Facebook. And this is a, this is a quote by Titnan Han. It says, you know, our society is founded on a very limited definition of power, namely wealth, professional success, fame, physical strength, military might, and political control. I suggest, that there, I suggest that there's another kind of power. The power to be happy right in the present moment, free from addiction, fear, despair, discrimination, anger, and ignorance. This power is the birthright of every human being, whether celebrated or unknown, rich or poor, strong or weak. This power, this happiness, is innate. And it's something that each of us can have access to if we are able to cultivate the what is needed to, to move the things away that obscure that. Yeah. So I made a couple suggestions during the presentation about coming up with a meditation buddy. 
not doing your limit, staying underneath that, and just making a commitment to taking one mindful breath a day. That's it. One mindful breath a day. So, here you are. Yeah. Very impactful. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Good. Well, I believe it's lunchtime now. It's lunchtime. Everybody, please enjoy the lunch. Wonderful. Sister, thank you so much yeah. for being here. Sister Alvin will be here again on the 21st of this month and also twice during the month of February on Fridays. And and let me just point these out. These are small little books. This has to do more with the business application of things. This is called Delivering Path, Happiness, A Path to Profits, Passion, and Purpose. This is um, somebody in the Google Enterprise created a whole program for everybody in the Googleplex to contemplate meditation. This is brilliant book. And the other brilliant book for people who are super, super, super busy is a book, very, very little, it's like this big, it's called Meditation on a New York Minute. And it was written by a man who was a venture capitalist who started meditating and quit being a venture capitalist to start teaching meditation. And his whole life is about insane pressures, time schedules, and and not having any time to meditate. So the whole book is how to meditate when you don't have any time. And it's brilliant. So these are resources, and you each are each other's resource. So if you feel inclined to see if you can find a meditation buddy that will help you with this process of developing the commitment until you get to the place, as you do with exercise, where it is self-sustaining, where we have... There's no question about bringing this into our lives because there's so many benefits. Why wouldn't you do it? But until you get there, it's helpful to have support because there's a million things in life that are going to grab your attention and say this is more important. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.